and welcome back to Really Bad Ideas, the continuing adventures of Alibuk, Dejack, and Lutze. I'm Carl, their GM and Eternal Tormentor, and this week we'll be picking up the story where we left off in episode 9. The party have recently reunited with Dar Dimblefoot, the halfling rogue. They met him in a cave in a rather unexpected place, where his sheerly innocent curiosity and willingness to rifle through everyone's bags opened up a portal to the plain of ice freezing a town's water supply. The party bravely, and somewhat reluctantly, entered the portal to retrieve the trinket. We last saw them on the run from a colossal ice creature, diving through the portal so that Iren Mateus, the merchant whose bags Dahl rifled through to cause this mess in the first place, closed the portal. Immediately after he did, Dahl stood up for the panting, exhausted group and announced, So who's coming with me to check out my shop? And with that, we'll begin Really Bad Ideas, Session 10, You Only Live Twice. Having assisted them in their quest, the party bid farewell to the paladin and cleric of Andaletta, Cassandra Mooncrest, and Nargrok Dimbane. Once out of earshot, the party start to discuss amongst themselves where exactly they're going to be heading. The choices seem fairly clear. Magnamar to return to Galadir, to inform him of what had happened with the Black Orc tribe, and also perhaps meet with Fetch to discuss where they might find the Blue Tribe in the hunt for Dejack's mother. Or move on to Sandpoint, to see what was happening with the butcher's shop that the party took over a few weeks ago. I say party, we mean darn trick. After some back and forth, the party agree that they'll head to Sandpoint to check on the shop. Some out of a sense of greed, some out of a sense of morbid curiosity as to what's happened. And so the party set forth in the week's trip back to Sandpoint. Along the way, they discussed the possibilities of what's happened. The young man, Eli, had been left with four weeks' worth of gold in order to buy and trade meat, to try and give the appearance that the butcher's shop was functioning as normal. Although, as many of you will remember, the butcher, Kendall, was killed four weeks ago by the party when he tried to run out of them after stealing a ruby, which Dar had previously stolen from a gang in Magnamar. The town crests the horizon and it's much the same as they left it. Sitting there at the edge of the ocean, the tides glinting in the sunlight, the townspeople going about their daily business as if nothing is wrong. No time to waste. Let's head straight to the butchers. But wait, there's something missing. Oh yes, Eli, the person they'd put in charge while they were gone, only knows Dar as Cousin Joffrey. And Cousin Joffrey only exists when Dar and his gnome friend Trick stand on top of each other's shoulders and wear a large coat. Classic. Fortunately, they remember to do this before they walk into the butcher's shop. Not that it would come to matter. Because who should they find behind the counter of the butcher's shop than Kendall, the original butcher? It's with commendable resistance that the party keep from saying, didn't we kill you when they see him? Knowing that this would surely give the game away. Instead, they decide to question him. Oh, hi, Kendall. Not seen you around in a while? Oh, no, I was out of town for a few days visiting family. Oh, really? Really? Seems like you've been gone longer than that. Nope, just a few days. Had someone cover me while I was gone. Do I know you? Something is definitely up. The newest party member, B, who wasn't here when they killed the butcher, is very, very confused because no one has explained to her exactly what is going on. Quickly, they grab her and drag her outside to prevent her from giving the game away. Soon, the second question arises. If Kendall's in there, what's become of Eli? Do we know where he lives? 
Well, let's see if you're paying attention. Give me a perception check. No one knows exactly where he lives. However, they do remember the fact that he said he was working at the tailors before they press-ganged him into working at the butchers. So that's where they head. Some conversation with the tailor reveals his address, or at least the address of his mother. The party head there and knock on the door. An old woman answers. We're looking for Eli. Well, Eli's been gone for two weeks now. Nobody's seen him. Do you, do you know anything? The more morally centred of the party start to look at each other with worried glances. Uh, no, we've just come back into town. We met him last time we were here, pro- about a month ago, I think. Um, if he's not here, though, we'll just, we'll just go. But no, that's not good enough. Alabuck reminds the party that they were the ones who got Eli into this. It's important that they find him. It's important that they let his mother know what's happened to him, if they can find out. So the party make a promise to the woman. They promise that if they find Eli, they will send him home, or let her know what's happened to him if Eli can't come home himself. The woman thanks them, and they go on their way. The party begin to ask around town, trying to find how long Kendall has been back in the butcher's shop. They discover that it's been about two weeks, roughly the same time that Eli disappeared. Trick, the memory of her wolf hopper biting into Kendall's leg still fresh in her mind, suggests that they check the point in the forest where they left him. Upon arrival, the party find a corpse, the corpse of Kendall, chewed on and slightly mouldering, but still very much recognisable as the old butcher. It's decided that they'll watch the butcher shop, stake it out until Kendall leaves, and then they'll watch where he goes, following him as quietly as they can. Hopefully he'll lead them to some more clues. So they sit, and they wait, with a good vantage point opposite the butcher's shop. And, as night falls, Kendall steps outside, locks the door, and begins to walk down the long and winding path to the beach. Slowly and quietly, the party follow Kendall, taking care to be aware of every step they take, as well as covering the more reflective parts of their armour so that the low light doesn't give them away. He leads them down a cliff, to the beach itself. On the beach are three other figures. The party risks getting close. Each of the new figures is dressed in black leather from neck to toe. At first, the faces of these people seem to be indistinguishable, difficult to focus on in the low light of the evening. When the party get closer, however, they see that this is not because they can't make out the detail, but because there is no detail there. The faces of these people are a swirled mass of flesh. A knowledge check from the party reveals that one of them before has read about faceless stalkers, creatures which can assume the identity of people. It's decided then and there that this evil should be put to rest, and the party charge. Kendall takes one look at them and runs to the cliffside, disappearing between two stones. The party defeat the faceless stalkers. They make no attempt to run and seem absolutely intent on fighting to the death. The party believe that this means something significant is happening. Once the battle is over, the bodies are, of course, looted, and the party follow the route which Kendall just took. Between the two rocks exists a dark alleyway. The further they walk, the darker it gets, not only because it's evening and the light is starting to fade, but this seems like an altogether more intentional darkness. 
Upon reaching the back of the cave, they find a plinth. Upon it sits a mask, moulded in the general shape of a humanoid face, with a white star over one eye. Alibuk informs them that this is a mask of Norgorba, the deity of greed, secrets, poison, and murder. Other than the mask, there is nothing at the end of this alleyway. Certainly no Kendall. The party attack the puzzle. Almost literally. The first thing they do is put blood onto the mask, because it's worked so many times before. That one's on me. They try pressing on it. They try praying to Norgorba. But nothing seems to work. Finally, to Jack, feeling that there may be some latent magical energy hidden within it, places the chain they took from the Black Orc champion onto the plinth. The shadows around them begin to stir, falling, attaching themselves to the Jack before. He's covered in darkness and then ceases to be. The party are understandably confused. They cannot figure out what has happened. How did Jack has managed to presumably make it through to the other side? Until someone suggests that well, he's the god of secrets. No one knew that we had that chain. No one knew that we've killed the champion. Okay, we didn't technically kill the champion. It was to Jack's mother, but they don't know possibly now, but they don't know that we were involved in the champion's death. Maybe it wants secrets. And so, each of the party whisper a secret into the ear of the mask, and one by one, they're taken away. Alibuk is the last to go. Before he whispers his secret, he picks up the chain from the mask plinth and gets transported through. The room the party members have been warped to is entirely black. Magical darkness covers the entire area. Before you tell me that you have dark vision or low light vision, I know you can't see, okay? It's echoey. It sounds like it has a high ceiling. There are tiles underfoot. Slowly, the party starts to walk forwards. When they reach a certain point in the floor, however, those party members who are now in front have started calling in surprise from behind. The rest of the party continue, getting transported back each time. Going backwards, they feel a wall behind them, and they trace along in the darkness, feeling along this wall until they reach a sort of recess. Stepping out into the recess, though, back they go. Eventually, through many rounds of trial and error, they realise that in these alcoves there are plinths, with more masks of Norgorba sat upon them, and as soon as they pass into their line of sight, they get transported back. Some party members try to slip behind the plinths. Some cover them with random detritus that they have in their bags, such as extra armour. But eventually, all the masks are covered, and they make their way to the end of the room, where exists a well. Now, Dar was the first person to reach the well, but when the party arrive, he's nowhere to be seen. The light here is a little better, and at the bottom of the well they can see many, many different coins, different denominations, different metals, from presumably a lot of different periods in history. Alibuk flips a gold coin into the fountain. Poof! He's transported back to the start. His kind and generous heart won't get him very far here. Remember, we're in the realm of the god of greed. Remembering this, the other party members reach into the well and pick up coins, at which point they are transported through to the next room. 
the coins drop harmlessly back into the fountain. Remember, we're in the realm of the god of greed. The next room is not dark. In fact, it's covered with many, many points of bioluminescence. And sure enough, Dar Dimplefoot is there waiting for them. Luminescent mold, brightly coloured fungus, covers the floor and the wall. The room is awash with vegetation of all different kinds. The druids in the party roll high on their nature checks, of course, and determine that everything in this room is poisonous in some way, including the beasts they manage to disturb while doing this. The party fight off giant scorpions, cockatrice, and fey spiders along with giant black widows in this room, dodging in between the dangerous plants. Who knows if they can inhale the poison, or whether it affects them by touch. Defeating the creatures just leaves them more confused. What are we supposed to do? There's no way out. There's no visible doors, windows. It's just a sealed room with all of these poisonous... Oh. So begins the discussion about which is the least poisonous poison in the room. The druids indicate that it is most likely the poison of the giant centipede they just fought. And so, with a great deal of trepidation, one of them deliberately poisoned themselves by pushing centipede venom into one of the wounds they had received. This causes them to disappear in the same manner that we'd witnessed in previous rooms. Quickly, the rest of the party scramble, inflicting small wounds on their person if they don't have any from the fight. The next room is another room of complete darkness. Unbeknownst to the players, the room they have entered is the temple itself, and the magical darkness is being produced by several chandeliers holding negative candles above them. Also in this room, they are not alone. They hear the voice of Kendall the Butcher call out, Ah, so you finally made it, did you? Well, in here, we have the advantage. Initiative is rolled and the party set about blindly fighting. Spells are fired off at random. High perception checks let players have a general feel for where an opponent is, but not necessarily making it easier to strike them. Alibuk finds another wall and, feeling his way along it, encounters a rope. A rope which extends to the ceiling. He withdraws his dagger and starts trying to soar through as faceless attackers surround him. Jack bellows, launching himself into the middle of the room, his axe flailing around wildly. As he does so, it catches one of the ropes, dropping a chandelier onto one of the stalkers and eliminating the darkness in that area. As his vision returns, he can see Kendall on the dais. But it's too late. He's been fighting too hard. He's lost too much blood. The jack falls to the floor, unconscious. The others, hearing his cries, run to him. Alibuk manages to soar through the chandelier rope, dropping another one, allowing the rest of the party to see the fallen de jack. But they stop. Dar has made it to him first. They return to their individual fights, seeing that Dar is reaching into his bag, presumably for a potion. But what he withdraws is a knife. A knife whose sheath is covered with jewels and decoration. A knife that when he draws, they can see it holds a wicked edge. A knife that he leans down and draws across Dejack's neck, seeming to whisper into Dejack's ear as he does so. The scene freezes. Everything stops, but the players can still see as the coalescing, shadowy form of Norgorba appears and places a hand on the shoulder of Dar Dimplefoot. At the touch of the god, 
Shadows run along Dar's arms and legs, encasing him in what seems to be an oily leather armour. They also run up to his face, covering his head and forming the mask of Norgorba with its one staring star. In another moment, they're gone. Disappeared. Alibuck runs to Dejak to heal him, as the rest of the party fight off the remaining faceless stalkers. Alibuck lays his hands on the half-orc, and Dejak gives a ragged gasp of air as he regains consciousness. For now, he has been spared the icy touch of death. And that's where we'll end the session. Thank you, everyone, for joining me for episode 10. I know it's been a long time coming. I haven't managed to get myself started again after Christmas, evidently, but now we're back. This particular session was great for me to run as a GM. I designed the dungeon by looking at the aspects of Norgorba and what he would embody. I figured that uh, such an evil, possibly neutral god, wouldn't care how his worshippers got through to his inner sanctum. And in fact, he might even want to just make sure that only the worthy got through, which is why there's a lot of uh, self-inflicted pain involved in the dungeon. This session also saw the sad loss to the table of Dar's character. They were moving, actually leaving the country so they couldn't continue to play. So we spoke together prior to the session and he decided that it would be amazing and quite suiting for Dar to go out with this horrible betrayal at the end. What's that? What the betrayal has done to Dejak, we'll have to see in the next session. But this is one event in my campaign that we keep coming back to, we keep reliving. It's definitely had an effect. And now it's time for the plugs. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave me a like on Spotify. If you want to come find me on Twitter so we can have a chat about uh, tabletop RPGs or fantasy in general, uh, you can find me at Bard Really. If you want to come see my minis, I've just painted an awesome new dragon, absolutely huge. You can find me on Instagram. And if you'd like to come and check out my writing, I have original fantasy fiction on my website, including short stories. And I'm about to start releasing a series, which will keep going until I run out of ideas. Uh, that's all available at reallybardideas.com and on Royal Road 2. So thank you very much for listening, everyone. I hope you'll come back for episode 11, which is entitled The Fated Spiral.